Got a few things to announce to you guys real quick before we uh, worship through the teaching of God's Word. Monday nights, I say it every week, Monday nights we have Awana and Youth Group here, 630 to 8. Excellent stuff to, to get your kids plugged into. So Monday nights, every Monday night, probably except for a few holidays or what have you, but pretty much every Monday night, tomorrow night, we do have Awana and we do have youth ministry. 7th seventh, seventh to 12th grade for our youth ministry in Awana is 3 years old to 6th to grade. So get your kids plugged into that. It's amazing. And then uh, what is that women's thing? Saturday, right? So this coming Saturday is the on the road thingy, on the road again dealy. Okay? And I think we have probably 9 or 10 gals signed up, which is cool. But man, some of you gals could get signed up for that thing today. Sign-ups are right in the back. We'd love to see you get plugged into that thing and, and spend some time with the women of, of RHC and, and, more importantly, with the Lord. So that's coming up. That's October 5th. And, and then community groups are going to begin pretty soon. We still have space in two of our groups. One of them's full, but we do have space in two groups. And uh, those will actually start next week. So we'd love, to, love for you to get plugged into a community group where you can begin to really do life with other brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, and, and you really need to do that. Sunday worship is phenomenal. We love it, right? But it's, you just need to be in, in community with God's people more so than just a couple of hours on Sunday morning. And so make sure you get signed up. We do have two groups available. Check, check the groups, check the information on them, check the night and the time, and see if, if you can uh, work your schedule to get plugged in. I, I would encourage uh, every person in here to be in a community group. So those are going to begin next week. And then uh, on the 13th, uh, which will be not this next Sunday coming up, but the one after that, right? Am I right? I'd have no calendar in front of me. So, and I, I, Is anyone else really terrible at keeping track of the days and all that? Yeah, right? People are like, dude, tomorrow's this. I'm like, oh my gosh, I haven't done anything for that yet. Um, so I, I'm terrible at that too. But on the 13th, we do have a fellowship and a potluck and like a worship concert here. It's going to be really cool. Randy Adams, my, my buddy, longtime uh, Buddy's going to come and lead us in, in worship, and so that'll be on Sunday, October 13th. The, the dinner time, the potluck dinner time will be from like 5 to 6, and then from 6 to 7, 7.30 or so, uh, Randy Adams will lead us in song, and I'm, I'm really excited about that. I can't think of anything else I need to announce. Is that it? Probably just want to encourage you guys and remind you to, to give of your time, talent, and treasure here to the church. Uh, more importantly, to Jesus Christ. Many, many opportunities in the back back there on the serve wall uh, there's five or six clipboards there with different areas that you can get plugged in to serve. And uh, I tell you, one of the areas that we have the, the greatest need right now would be in our kids' ministry. Um, you know, we've, we've had some of our kids' ministry leaders, their schedules have changed, and, and some of them can't be here regularly on Sunday, so they're, you know, they're, they're going to be coming off of the rotation. And, uh, and so we, we need people to, to serve our kids. And it's, what is it? It's a, it's a once-a-month commitment. One Sunday, you'd commit yourself to, to coming down here and, and loving on our children here. And it's, it's huge. You're going to make an impact. God is going to use you. It's such important ministry. Now, here's what happens if you don't get signed up to serve. When somebody comes off because of their schedule change, somebody else has to step up and do it multiple times during the month. So guess what that means? They're not in adult service for two or three times. Some, for some people, it's three times. Uh, that's just not, that's not acceptable. And, uh, you know, we, we, we want the people of this church, we want you family members to serve the Lord, but we also want you to be in adult services. So we don't want anyone to have to serve down in kids two, three times in a row. 
It's ridiculous. And so how do we take care of that? You sign up. You sign up. We'll, you, you'll be showed what to do. You'll be trained. It's not rocket science. You just go down and love kids, and there's a lesson and stuff, and we provide all the resource. So I want to really encourage you guys, if you're not plugged in serving at this church yet, and some people are plugged into like three different areas. I need to get them like four lanyards. I serve over here. I serve over here. Some of you haven't gotten plugged in to serve yet. And boy, let me tell you, that would sure lighten the load for some of these other folks that are doing it over and over. So I want to encourage you to do that. Aaron, you were mentioning something else. Uh, October 19th is our next So October 19th, that's a Saturday. What time do you guys meet down here? 9 a.m. They'll meet down here and they go out into these neighborhoods here and just kind of blanket the neighborhood and go door to door. And, uh, and just, just, you know, introduce ourselves. Hey, we're, we're a church that gathers over on the corner of 14th and H. And, and how can we pray for you? How can we minister to you? Uh, we'd love to invite you to come to church. You know, it's kind of that thing. Uh, you engage in prayer and conversation. It's really, really a neat thing. It's a challenging thing. You're going door to door. So, you know, my first inclination is to go to the door and then run, you know, doorbell ditch them. Um, used to do that when we were kids, right? As long as you don't do the bag of poop thing, you know, with the fire, that's not good. Uh, we don't do that. Uh, so, uh, you know, yeah, people are going, that happened to me. That was terrible. Uh, happened to me like three times. But anyways, we do go door to door. And, uh, and, you know, what did we have last time? Eight or nine people that went out and did it? I mean, that's, that's encouraging. The first time we did it, we had like two people. Okay, and then the second time we did it, like we had like eight people. And so people are, are you know, just praying and seeking the Lord and saying, hey, I'm going to go down and do that. Because you know what? How many churches you know, are smack dab in the middle of a particular neighborhood and they're not doing a whole lot to reach the houses around them, but they got people coming in from all over town and everything else. That's one of the things that, that just happens all the time. We need, to be tried, we need to try our very best to minister the Lord's grace to the houses around us here. And so we go out and do that and it's really, really an amazing time. So that's the 19th. And Aaron usually comes down and leads that thing and he's just a lot of fun to be around anyways. So I want to encourage you guys with that stuff. All right, you ready? Try, still trying to get over the flaming dog thing real quick here. Uh, that screwed up my whole morning, apparently. Um, no, it didn't. All right, take your Bibles and turn over to Acts 13. Acts 13. We've been there since 1974. We've been there for a while, huh? But, you know, sue me. Acts 13. We are currently working our way through the book of Acts, and, uh, and I just can't get past this chapter. Uh, we've been examining Paul's sermon to the Galatians at Pisidian Antioch in 13. That's basically what chapter 13 is. And, uh, and here are the things, just to, just to catch you up to, you know, catch you up to par, to kind of bring you on to speed, and if you haven't been with us, you'd, you know, you'd have no idea where we've been, and so it'll be good to kind of just do a quick summary, but here are the things that Paul has covered so far in his sermon in verses 16 to 30, okay? So he came to Pisidian Antioch with Barnabas, and they're there as ministers of the gospel to proclaim the gospel. They've gone into a synagogue, and Paul has been preaching a sermon to these Jews and then these Gentiles who were called God-fearers. And so the things that he's covered so far, God promised Abraham that he would bless the world through Abraham's offspring. This is something he covered. God carried his Abrahamic promise through uh, the other patriarchs, you know, uh, 
Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and so on, and then through Moses, Joshua, and the judges. These are things that Paul has covered. He's been given like, he gave like this sort of historical survey of God's redemptive plan. Um, he also covered God rose up a king after his own heart. That would have been King David, who was descended from Abraham and promised David that the Messiah would come through his bloodline. That's something that Paul covered. God confirmed and announced the fulfillment of his Abrahamic and some of the Davidic promise to some degree through John the Baptist who came and announced the coming and arrival of Israel's Messiah, Jesus Christ. And then God sent, Paul covered this, God sent Jesus Christ the Messiah as confirmed by John the Baptist amongst other things. Um, and yet Paul reminds these, his hearers, these listeners of his sermon that Israel was blind and ignorant and then rejected and killed their Messiah by crucifying him. Paul's covered that. And, and he also reminded them that Israel did not nullify God's plans by killing their own Messiah. You would think that, oh, we killed our Messiah. He came to save and redeem us. Uh, we're lost now. We're, we're totally jacked. And there's no hope because of what we've done. Uh, he reminds them that they're uh, that did not at all nullify God's plan, but rather fulfilled them according to the scriptures. What a twist, right? Uh, you think that you jacked up God's plan, but God actually used your insolence, your rejection of him, and your bloodlust and thirst to fulfill his plan according to scripture, right? And the people out there are going, what the heck is going on? They must be thinking, what in the world? We actually fulfilled his plan? And then God, obviously, Paul reminded them of the resurrection, which is the cornerstone of apostolic preaching. God raised Jesus from the dead and the grave three days later. So those are the things that Paul has covered in this sermon so far. And we are going to pick up in verse 31. And Lord willing, we will continue. But I think it is necessary to pray once more before I teach and before you take amazing notes and listen and, and uh, allow the Holy Spirit to minister to you and change you. Father, I want to give up this time to you right now, Lord. Um, I love the fact that at this church we pray two, three times even before we get to the sermon. Um, and I don't think we pray enough during our church services. And, and so we, we love the fact that we pray a lot here. And... Uh, and we're, we're praying right now, Lord. We're praying right now. We're praying right now for your wisdom. We're praying for your guidance. We're praying for the Holy Spirit. Uh, lest he opens our hearts and minds to the truth, it just bounces off of us like Kevlar. We, we don't, he's got to do the work. And he does do that work. And so we, we, we call out to you, Holy Spirit, open our hearts and minds to you. Give us ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts to receive all that you would have for us. And, uh, and this may very well be the most important sermon that, that some folks in this room hear today. Um, it very well could be when we're talking about salvation. And uh, so, God, I pray that you would speak to each and every one of us, that you would meet each and every one of us with your grace, with your mercy, and with deep, deep conviction. And I know, Lord, that uh, Satan does not desire one bit to have a sermon like this preached, or any sermon, really, that's about Jesus. He hates Jesus. Jesus is his enemy. And we are his enemy, those who are in Christ. And so we pray against him now, Lord, that you would prevail over him in this moment with the truth and with the power of the Holy Spirit. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.
All right, guys. Verse 31. Are you there? If you're there, say, I'm there. All right, verse 31. Remember, he's talked about the resurrection. That's kind of where we cut it off last week, or two weeks ago, I should say. And I want to thank Colby for preaching last week. That was phenomenal. Thank you, Colby. Verse 31, it says, And for many days he, speaking of Jesus, appeared to those who had come up from, or come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. All right, commentary, right? We just heard from the word. Now we gotta, I got to give you the commentary on it. This is the teaching. Paul said, after God raised Jesus from the dead, Jesus appeared for many days to those whom had traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. Who was Paul referring to here? Who did Jesus appear to? Who traveled with Jesus from Galilee? Who is he referencing here? Some say Paul was referring to the apostles, to that little band or group of men that Jesus had selected to do the ministry with him. Some say that, but I'm a little slow to agree that it's that narrow of a group, that it's only the 12. I believe it was a much larger group. And why don't you just turn right over to 1 Corinthians 15. You were just there a moment ago. 1 Corinthians 15, we're going to look at 1 to 8 for a moment. And we're going to find our answer right here in this amazing text that Trish, and I so thank her for doing that, that she read. It's precisely why I had it read today, so that we would be able to see and we'd be tracking together. 1 Cor 15, 1 to 8, our answer is here. We will find here in this particular text who he appeared to, who he traveled with. 1 Cor 15, 1 to 8, Now I would remind you, Paul says, Brothers of the gospel I preach to you, which you received, oh, you believed it, in which you stand, you're standing on it, and by which you are being saved, being. Isn't that neat? Salvation is a progressive thing. Yes, you're saved once and for all, but it's a continual work of sanctification. And he says, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. Verse 3, for I deliver to you as of first importance, primary thing here, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Did you just see that little verse right there and what's in it? You've got the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You have the gospel in a nutshell. Isn't that amazing? In most cases, you have to run all over scripture to find where, you know, Jesus talked, prophetically talked about what was going to happen to him. I'm going to die, I'm going to be betrayed, and all these things. You've got to kind of piece together those three core components of the gospel and right here in that text right there it is all contained the death burial and resurrection of Jesus I love it use that text in evangelism right here's the gospel friend and it says that he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures boom and that he appeared to Cephas here's who he appeared to Cephas not Bo Cephas some other Cephas then to the twelve and listen, more, verse 6, okay, so we've got Cephas, and then we've got the 12. So Cephas isn't a part of the 12, don't even know who he is. And it says in 6, then he appeared to more than what? What does it say in your Bible? 500 brothers, brothers at one time. Poof, group of 500. What's up? There he is. And it says, most of all, whom are still alive, 
though some have fallen asleep. We don't die. Christians don't die. They sleep in the Lord till his return. And then it says, then he appeared to James. Here's another one. Then to all the apostles. And then last of all, as to one untimely born. Not sure what he means there. Interesting. He appeared also to me is what Paul says. So Jesus apparently traveled with and appeared to a lot of people. Amen? 500 plus, not just the 12 as some commentators speculate, but many, 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 many folks. After he died and was buried and rose, he appeared to 500 plus people. And some of them Paul even names here. And then we know that after the ascension that Jesus appeared to Paul on the Damascus road. So what's Paul's major point here uh, to the Galatians by saying in our original text to them saying that he appeared to many who traveled. And then over here in 1 Corinthians we see him give name and reference to all of these people. What is his major point to his audience that he's speaking to there and then later on to the Corinthians? It's this. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is an undeniable fact because he appeared to well over 500 people after being raised. That's what he's saying. It is a fact. Paul himself had seen the risen Lord on the Damascus road three years after the ascension. He was convinced, and he didn't become convinced at all of the truth of the gospel or Jesus until Jesus appeared to him. The end of verse 31 says that every person whom Jesus revealed himself to became a witness. It says, who are now his witnesses to the people. Do you see that over in your original text, verse 31? All these folks, this 500 plus group, they all became witnesses to the Lord. After they had seen him, after they'd seen the risen Lord, they began to tell others about him. What did they say? He is risen. He is risen indeed. We saw him with our own eyes. What else did they say? Jesus is alive. Now, how many times did Jesus appear to these witnesses, to this 500-plus group? Once? Twice? Three times a lady? How many times did he appear to this group? The answer is in Acts 1-3. We studied that an eternity ago, 18 months ago, we actually studied that text. I did the math. That's how long we've been in this book. Acts 1-3. This is amazing. Acts 1-3. Jesus, it says he, put him in the bars there. Jesus pre uh, presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. The answer, there were 40 days between the resurrection and ascension of the Lord Jesus. The Lord spent those 40 days revealing himself to these witnesses, coming and going, and teaching them about the kingdom of God. God. And so for 40 days between his, you know, rising and his rising up into glory, for that 40 days, he came and went back and forth, back and forth into their presence, out of their presence. And every time he came, 
He made sure that they knew who he was and he proclaimed the kingdom of God, the gospel. So he came to so many people after he rose from the dead. He came and visited 500 plus people and he did it probably every day. I mean, that's just how dull we are, right? Jesus can't come to us once and reveal himself to some degree, right? I know how dull I am. I need to see him three or four times before I become convinced that it's him. I need to hear his word three or four times before I become convinced that he's actually speaking to me. He came and he went and he came and he went and there were so many people. This is encouraging. This is amazing. 40 days, man. 40 days. Now, 10 days later, after the ascension, the Feast of Pentecost happened. And the Lord did exactly what he promised to do. He sent the helper. He sent the Holy Spirit who came down and rested upon 120 of these witnesses while they were what? They were gathered in the upper room praying and seeking the Lord, worshiping. And then filled with the Holy Spirit, this 120 went down amongst the foreign and domestic Jews and God-fearers, all these people that were gathered to worship during the Feast of Pentecost. And what did they do? This 120 went down there in their midst and began to bear witness to what? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. And they did it how? In many, 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 many different languages. These people had come from all over the world. They spoke different languages. And these witnesses came down and miraculously spoke French. Wee oui, wee, oui. Jesus, whatever language was, I doubt they were French, but, but they came down and spoke the gospel and proclaimed the gospel to all these people. And then what happened next? Peter preached, a, he preached the gospel, he preached the resurrection of Jesus Christ, he preached repentance, right? Repent, lest ye should perish, trust in Jesus, the one you murdered. And what happened? 3,000 people were saved and then baptized and the church was born. Now you must know that every true believer, Jesus Christ, true follower, and I say true because there's fake ones, every true believer is a personal witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Every believer, every true Believer is a witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, it's completely obvious that you and I were not present and outside the tomb 2,000 years ago to see for ourselves, right? We were not part of the 500-plus group that Jesus visited and taught for 40 days. But our encounter and experience with the risen Lord is similar to Paul's. It came later. But we are no less witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ than any of them. No less. When the Father saves a lost sinner, he sends the Holy Spirit to remove the scales from their eyes so that, they, so that he may reveal the risen Lord to them. He also puts the Holy Spirit in them who becomes their teacher, sanctifier, and keeper. The Holy Spirit affirms and assures us that the resurrection is true. His presence within us authenticates the claims of Scripture, more particularly the claim of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is also simultaneously supported by historical record. Some of you may not know that. 
The scriptures, no doubt, testify to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit that lives within you, Christian, testifies to the truth of the resurrection. But history also does, too. Just read the writings of Josephus and Suetonius and Pliny the Younger. They all corroborate with scripture. They all give testimony to the resurrection of Jesus. And some of those guys, I don't believe Josephus was even a believer, a follower of Jesus. And so the very presence of the Holy Spirit, he's the one that opens us up to it, and he's the one that convinces us that the resurrection is true. Therefore, we are what? Witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You're saved, Christian, by resurrection power. If it weren't for that resurrection, you wouldn't be saved. But you're saved because of that power. Now, why do people in and out of the church reject the resurrection of Jesus Christ? It happens all the time, Great multitude of people that claim to be Christians who reject, mostly in liberal circles, they reject all those literal biblical truths and the miraculous things and all that. They're much like those old Sadducees. Why do people reject the resurrection of Jesus Christ? They do so because they do not have the Holy Spirit who is the revealer of biblical truth or more particularly salvific truth. The Reformers called the Holy Spirit uh, magistar veritatis, magistar veritatis, which in Latin means teacher of all truth. I love those old reformed Latin terms. Teacher of all truth. Okay, the Holy Spirit is the teacher of all biblical, scriptural, salvific truth. He is the revealer and the teacher of it. So to deny the teacher, the Holy Spirit, is to deny his teaching. And to deny his teaching is to deny salvation. Those who have the Holy Spirit will at times question biblical teaching or biblical truths, right? There's just some things you say, really? Jonah was in a whale? The Red Sea was split? Wow, Lazarus was raised? There's just sometimes that things are just kind of beyond our physical comprehension. We you know, we'll question those things, or there might be other things in Scripture that maybe, you know, aren't storyline stuff, but other important truths that we tend to question at times. We, we you know, those who have the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit will wrestle with biblical truth, right? People have been wrestling with the doctrine of election since the beginning. Does God chose for himself a people, as it says in Scripture, or do people choose God or People wrestle with those sorts of truths. And to be quite honest with you, I'm pretty convinced of one side of it, but I still wrestle with it at times. You know, I do. You know, people will wrestle with the truths. They'll question the truths. They'll even be baffled by biblical truths and even marvel at their complexities. Okay, I'm talking about people who have the Holy Spirit. We wrestle with stuff. We have flesh. We have finite minds. It's normal for us to do so, right? It's completely normal for us to, to wrestle with these things, but it is not in the new nature. We are new creations. It is not in the new nature of a truly redeemed person to flat out deny biblical truths. Did you hear what I said? You come up against something in Scripture... And it's plain, 
It's plain to the eye. It's affirmed over and over and over by other passages because the scriptures themselves are self-affirming. We don't need men out there to tell us what it means. The scripture says this, and then over here it affirms it 98 times to the fifth power. When you come up to a scriptural truth, it is not in your nature as a new creation to say, no way it means that. Nope, I'm going to reject that because that's just a doctrine that some man came up with. Be careful, Christian. When we come up against complex and difficult truths, it should not be in our nature just to reject them. What should be in our nature as inquisitive young children in the faith, right? You don't receive the kingdom unless you receive it as a child. We should humble ourselves and say, I wonder what that means. And then you put in the work to find out. That should be the attitude. But it is not in our new nature to just flat out deny and reject what is plain in Scripture, especially when we're talking about truths that have to do with salvation. Okay? Now you're thinking, why is he beating a dead horse on this thing? Because it happens all the time, even in this church. That's what we do. <laughs> we don't like the way something sounds. We don't like the way it reads. We think that it contradicts something over here. And let me tell you something right now, something I heard the other day, which is so good, as pertaining to that election kind of argument there. Well, the Armenians have their verses and the, the Calvinists have their verses. Wrong! They're all God's verses. Amen? We don't have our verses over in this camp and you have your verses. What are we doing? Dividing the word? Somehow they work together harmoniously. I like to think they work together harmoniously in context. But we need to be real careful here not to divide up. And I am guilty. I've done this. I've said, well, that can't mean that. Be careful, Pastor Phil. Don't be so quick. It's not indicative of your new nature to just reject what might be plain to see in Scripture. It's a great word of caution to us. We have the Holy Spirit. It is not in the nature of the Holy Spirit himself to just have you know, the Holy Spirit say, that's not at all what that passage means, even though it's clear. The Spirit affirms the truth. And it's our calloused hearts and our traditions and, and whatever it is that we cling to that blocks us from receiving truth at times. It's not the Holy Spirit that does it. Not the Holy Spirit. It's not in our nature just to flat out reject things. We ought to be investigators. Sherlock Holmes action. Every Christian should be a scholar. Wow, look at that. That's a challenging passage. I'm going to do the research to look into it. Not, hey, just, it can't mean that. Careful. Not good. Now, according to the Apostle Paul, to deny, okay, the Apostle Paul, to deny, according to Scripture, to deny the resurrection of Jesus Christ is to deny the salvation of Jesus Christ. It's just that plain. According to the Apostle Paul, if you deny the resurrection, you deny salvation. According to the Bible, which is our highest authority, okay, our highest authority, the Word of God, According to the Bible, which is our highest authority, there is no form or mode of salvation that exists in the known world apart from what? The death, the burial, and what? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. There is no salvation apart from those three things. Can I get an amen? That's it. To deny the resurrection of Jesus Christ unto death, 
To hold that denying, rejecting position unto death is to blaspheme the Holy Spirit, and those who do so receive the justice and wrath of God. Period. If you find yourself debating a person who says, I'm a Christian and I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, but I, not, I do not believe in the resurrection, I do not believe in a literal resurrection, you are not debating a Christian. Let's just end the polite Christian platitudes and say it like it is. I'm so tired of this in the church. You know, somebody just flat out rejects things and we, don't, we, don't, what, we just don't have the gumption, we don't have the, the clout to say, guess what? No offense, but you're not a Christian. No, we say, well, I guess you could be a strand of Christianity. A strand? Are there varying strands in the faith? You're not debating someone who's a Christian who rejects the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You just got to know that. You are debating someone who thinks he or she is a Christian, but doesn't understand what Christians are supposed to believe. Do not receive them as a brother or sister in or of the Lord. Rather than doing that, okay, it's all right for you to come right in and be a part of this fellowship and hold your belief and we'll hold ours and we'll just, you know, we're doing all this in the name of unity. You can't have unity with a person who rejects that aspect of the gospel, but some think they can. Rather than inviting them in and making them a part of the fellowship, why not evangelize them? Give them the scriptures. Give them the gospel in a nutshell from 1 Corinthians 15, 3 to 4. Amen? Paul said, man, this is the deal right here. It's the, and I always like to add the life of Jesus because he earned the righteousness we need. But it really is, the, it is the, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He said again, 1 Corinthians 15, 3, For Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture. There's the death. That he was buried. There's the burial. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Boom, there it is. There's the gospel. And now if you share these things with these folks or this person, and they're everywhere, they continue to reject the truth, shake the dust from your feet, and move on. And pray, 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 pray that God would send the Holy Spirit to open their eyes and hearts, right? That's what you got to do. That's what we Christians do. That's what we should do. Now look at 32 with me. Look at 32 with me. Jesus appeared to a whole bunch of people over a period of 40 days. That's what Paul has reminded them of so far. And in 32, he says, And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, comma, Paul is basically saying this, Barnabas and I have come, that's who he's traveling with, have come to tell you about the good news that God has fulfilled his promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob through who? The risen Christ. That's what he's saying. We have come to bear witness to you, to share with you that God has fulfilled these promises. You guys are sitting over here in the congregation biting your nails waiting for the Messiah to come. God sent him. He's come. That's what Paul is saying. In verse 33, verses 33 to 35... Paul begins to back up his claim. We're here to tell you about the promise. It's answered. He's going to back up his claim by citing three very important Old Testament promises, each of which deal with the resurrection of Israel's Messiah, the world's Messiah. 
Look at 33 to 36 with me. 33 to 36. This he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. There's the resurrection. As also it is written in the second Psalm, You are my son, capitalized. Today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says, also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. 36, for David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. His body rotted. And then 37, we're actually going through to 37, it says, But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Now the first promise was fulfilled. Remember, we've got three promises here that Paul mentions just to build up his case for Jesus being the promised risen Savior. The first promise was fulfilled when God raised Jesus as also it is written in the second Psalm, You are my son, Today I have begotten you. Psalm 2-7, quoted here by Paul, predicts not only Christ's incarnation, but also his resurrection. The resurrection magnified and glorified Christ's sonship. Now we've got to be a little careful here, though. People have misunderstood what the phrase begotten means, and that has led many folks down many, many, many heretical paths. People have taken David's prophetic words here and Paul's, you know, uh, reminding these people up and they've taken it and just run crazy with it while not understanding what it actually means, what begotten means. When Paul made his appeal to Psalm 2-7, he was not talking about a moment where Jesus was procreated by God or accepted by God. I've actually heard these things taught that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation, which means he was the first one to be created. Uh, I've heard this, Todd, just a little paraphrase. As a boy, as a teenager, as a young adult, Jesus was uncertain about his destiny and he had to discover his purpose as he traveled through life. And then when he hit the age of 30, a voice from heaven boomed. It came down and said, you've done everything you were supposed to do and now I am begetting or accepting you as my son. Have you ever heard those things, Todd? I have. Really? <laughs> what a bunch of garbage. Look, man. The scriptures declare that Jesus is and always has been God. If he isn't God, our salvation is sunk. No man alone could redeem us. He had to be a God-man, okay? The scriptures testify to this over and over and over to the deity of Jesus Christ. In fact, I got so tired of counting the passages. I stopped at 100. There are at least 100 passages that testify point directly to the deity of Jesus Christ or flat out proclaim it. How Mormons and how Jehovah's Witnesses and everyone else misses this, I don't get. I can't wrap my mind around it. The scriptures are so very clear. Over 100 passages say or point to the deity of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus is God, he can never be begotten by God in a literal sense. 
God cannot procreate or accept himself. God cannot deny himself. God is triune, right? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God is eternal. He has no beginning and no end. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have always been and will always be. God did not create from himself the Son and the Holy Spirit. It's not like God existed for eternity and he created the Son and he created the Holy Spirit. This is important to know too. The Son and the Holy Spirit are not mere manifestations of God the Father as many charismatics and modalists, all modalists claim this. Modalism is a particular heresy that says that Jesus and the Holy Spirit are God to some degree, but they're really like images of him, that spirits that floated down here and they've done their job and then they return and you know, it's just crazy weirdness. God is and will always be. God has chosen to reveal himself as, and this is who he is in his very essence, Father, Son. When you think of God, think Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's who God is. All are God. All are eternal. All are equal. And they are all exactly the same. There is no variance in either one of them. Not at all. And yet... All three serve in different roles of the salvation of lost sinners. Isn't that interesting? Adrian Rogers used to say all the time, the Father wrought, W, wrought our salvation. The Son bought our salvation. The Spirit brought our salvation. I love that. He used to say that all the time. And then I made up this one, the late, great Phil Baker. It can only, I, I'm not even unworthy to untie Adrian Rogers' shoes. Think of their roles in salvation, the salvation of men in terms of construction terms, okay? Contracting terms, any construction workers in here. You're going to be like, dude, now he's speaking my language. Nobody here works in construction, so this is not going to work. Okay. Dang it. The father is the architect, right? The son is the bank, and the Holy Spirit is the contractor, right? Think of it in terms of that. They're all the same, but they all serve in different roles in the salvation of lost sinners. This is amazing. Now, it is true. It is true that the Virgin Mary gave birth to the God-man. But you must know that Mary herself did not contribute in any way to the divinity of Jesus Christ. Why would you say that, Pastor Phil? Because there are people that believe that Mary was from God just as Jesus was. That she was holy and perfect and without sin. And that is why a billion people that belong to a particular sect within Christianity worship Mary. Not all of them do, but most of them do. You know who I'm referring to. And by all means, I pray that they come to know the Lord in the real way. Now, the divinity of the Son... Okay? Mary did not contribute to the divinity of the Son. The divinity of the Son stepped out of eternal glory in heaven and was miraculously put within Mary by the Holy Spirit. The scriptures say the Holy Spirit, what? Came upon her. Now, even at this point, there was no literal begetting of the Father to the Son. Okay? 
God did not procreate the son. God did not accept the son according to all these wonderful things that he did. So what did the Apostle Paul mean when he quoted Psalm 2-7? Because I've just spent all this time shooting down this idea of a literal begetting, like God actually, you know, pro procreated the Son. The Son is eternal. He can't be created or any of those things. So what does Paul mean? The text plainly says, you are my Son. This is God speaking. You are my Son. Who is he speaking of? The Messiah. Today I have begotten you. Is Pastor Phil lying as usual? If I am, I'm unaware of it, believe me. I'm pretty confident, friends. I'm pretty confident that the deity of the Son rules out the idea that God could beget or procreate the Son or even accept the Son. Both of them are God. Both of them are eternal. Both of them are unchanging. R.C. Sproul gave a great explanation. I love what he said. He wrote this. The term begotten, all right, that's Psalm 2-7, what Paul quotes, was used in here in this particular text in a metaphorical way. He says, I agree with just about every commentator on Acts that when Paul made this appeal to Psalm 2, he was not talking about a moment where Jesus was begotten, procreated or accepted. The begottenness of the psalm was fulfilled at the resurrection, where in a sense, begottenness became a synonym for exaltation. Throughout the ministry of Jesus, God opened up the heavens from the clouds and spoke audibly. At the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, God said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Later on the Mount of Transfiguration, God said, This is my beloved Son. Shut up and listen to him. That voice, that voice had the greatest clarity. Okay, the voice of God had the greatest clarity when God raised his Son from the dead. Now, a second promise from Isaiah 55, 3 came true when God raised Jesus from the dead. No more to return to corruption. He has spoken in this way. It says, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. A dead Messiah could not have been the channel for the holy and sure blessings God promised to David and his posterity. The last, okay? Think about that. Now, the last and greatest promise comes from another psalm. Psalm 16, David writes in verse 10, You will not let your Holy One see corruption. That David had Messiah, not himself, in view is obvious. And then the text says what? For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. That David's body remained in his grave after his death is also obvious, since no one believed that he had already been resurrected. Now, in sharp contrast to David, however, the one whom God raised up did not see corruption. Who is the one whom God raised up and did not see corruption? The one that Paul has been proclaiming, the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. So we have three promises made in the Old Testament and three promises fulfilled through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Again, Psalm 2-7 predicts not only Christ's incarnation but also his resurrection. The resurrection magnified and glorified Christ's sonship. 
2, Isaiah 55, 3, shows us that the Messiah was to be a channel for the holy and sure blessings God promised to David and his posterity. The risen Christ is the everlasting king who will fulfill more promises when he returns to establish his Davidic throne forever. He will fulfill that promise, guaranteed. And then 3, Psalm 16.10, these are what we've covered, says that the Messiah, Psalm 16.10 says that the Messiah would not see corruption. Although he died, Jesus' body did not see decay uh, because he was resurrected into a perfect and incorruptible body. Other scriptures affirm this, like Colossians 1.5. It says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And as I alluded to earlier, firstborn of all creation does not mean that Jesus was the first person to ever be created, like the Jehovah's Witnesses say and others. It means that Jesus is the first person of all time to ever be resurrected in the literal biblical sense into a glorified and incorruptible body. The scriptures show us many accounts of people being raised from the dead, right? Jesus himself raised people from the dead. Think of Lazarus. But they were all resuscitated, being brought back to life, only to experience death again later. Only one person in history has ever been resurrected, truly resurrected according to the scripture, into this perfect, incorruptible, glorified body, and that person is Jesus Christ. Because of the resurrection, Christ lives today. He rules and reigns from his throne in heaven. And he rules and reigns in the hearts of the redeemed. He lives and he intercedes for us at this very moment. He is our great high priest. Amen. You see how important the resurrection is here and why Paul is just doing what he can to bring it to the forefront of these listeners' minds. I love what MacArthur wrote. All those promises and countless others required the resurrection of Jesus for their fulfillment. A dead Messiah fulfills nothing. Thus, those promises are also powerful Old Testament proofs that Jesus is the Messiah. Friends, I just want to remind you of something at this particular moment. Every year, this might be a good time to bring it to an end and then, even though I'm, I'm cooking right now, and I've got a lot of text in front of me, but it's all right. This might be a good time to, to draw a conclusion. Maybe I, I could ponder these things. Every year, millions upon millions upon millions of Muslims Buddhists, Sikhs, Confucianists, and so on and so forth, visit the tombs where their messiahs are laid to rest. It's quite remarkable how many people go to Mecca and these other places every year to worship piles of bones. They travel far and wide, and travel over great distances, over land and sea, to come and worship piles of bones or a tooth or whatever. The tomb of our Messiah is empty. 
that old tomb that Joseph of Arimathea purchased and, and said, you can bury my Messiah there. The tomb's empty. The tomb is empty. Our Messiah rose from the grave, incorruptible, and he lives today just as he lived 2,000 years ago and throughout all the ages. I think that's Paul's big point right here. He lives. Paul and Barnabas have come to say, yeah, you screwed up. You rejected him. You killed him. But in doing so, you fulfilled Scripture. And Paul and Barnabas are there to say in that very moment, he lives and we bear testimony to it. Our very words are coming from him. He is speaking through us, through the might and power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Do you believe he lives today, friend? Because he lives, he sustains your faith. Dead Messiah can't keep your faith going. You got to do that. You got to do all you can to keep it going. Because he lives, he keeps it going. He keeps the fire stoked. He causes you to persevere. And he will do what he has promised to do, and that is to bring the good work he began in your life to full completion at the moment of your glory. When you are glorified, into the same and very kind of body later on in that resurrection, but even in a spiritual sense before the resurrection, that you will go to be with him in his presence and await that final moment when you receive that amazing glorified body, that resurrected body. Because he was resurrected, we will receive a resurrected body. I need one. I ache. Got a runny nose. I get tired. Right? Bruce, I know you know what I'm saying. He's older than Methuselah. He's not. A couple years under. Right? What a day that'll be when we receive those bodies. And I'm just looking forward to the moment that I get to go to be in his presence where there is no more pain and, and those things. And I don't have to read in the paper about 100 plus Christians that were murdered by guys who strapped bombs to their chests and blew up a church with a children's choir on stage. One of the core tenets of radical Islam is that they, they believe that they gain heaven by creating hell on earth. Wow. I won't have to read about those things anymore. And I, I, I am really looking forward to the day that the Lord returns and brings justice. But I'm praying right now, and I hope you join me in praying, that God would save. I, I don't know if you knew this or not, but there's about a million Muslims a year that are leaving Islam to come to Christ. That's incredible. That is incredible. We're praying for revival like that here, but everyone here knows the Lord already. <laughs> All right. Anyways, I don't want to ad lib anymore. I think we should enter into this time of uh, communion, of just worshiping Christ, knowing that He's risen. 
that if you're in him, he rose from the dead. He, he, let's go back. He died, you're in him. He died on a cross for your sin, removed it. As far as the east is from the west, it's gone. Every bit of nasty sin. That he was buried. I like what Colby says there. That's where he was settling accounts. It's great. And that he rose in victory over sin and death. And through the resurrection that we might live in him and for him. That's how important the resurrection is. That's how important that facet of resurrection is to the gospel. It's an amazing, astonishing, miraculous thing, but may we receive it wholeheartedly. As a new creation, you should believe it wholeheartedly. So as we go into communion, let's just worship the risen Christ. Let's remember what those elements represent, all those things that preceded his resurrection. That was his bloody death, marred and beaten beyond recognition, slaughtered like a lamb for our sin. Let's remember those things. That's what those elements represent. They also represent our, his atonement to us, that he's, he's made an atonement for us, but they represent our freedom. And we don't have to walk out of this place trying to earn our way with God by any means. That Christ earned our righteousness and by faith we receive it. Which means we're not performing for God. Running around jumping through hoops trying to please him and trying to cause him to give us more favor or salvation or anything else. God is ultimately pleased with his son and what his son did. And his son's work is complete completely enough to save and sanctify a lost, wretched sinner like me and you. We would take those elements remembering our freedom and liberty in Christ, that he has snapped and burned off and melted and broken all of the shackles, everything that impedes us. Christ is victorious. Isn't he? When he rose, sealed that victory for us. Let's worship him. Father, we want to come solemnly to this time here. God, search our hearts and convict us of any sin that we might have before we take these elements. And we would be, even in this very moment, just reconciled to you. Just relationally, we know that we are saved. We are Christians. We don't have to get re-saved. We want to spend a moment just confessing our sin. Eliminating the the gap that sin causes us between you and I and us and you. Help us to confess our sin, Lord, and then to take these elements with hearts exploding with love, gratitude, adoration for you. Jesus, you are marvelous. And all that we have and all that we will ever need is truly in you. May we believe that today as we take these elements and may we celebrate and worship you. You have risen and we thank you. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Help yourselves. The elements are on the sides.